following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Well, we wish you a good evening tonight. Welcome back to our evening service. Uh, let's have a scripture reading. I want to keep the young people here for that this time. I was going to read from Isaiah, but I thought maybe better of myself here. Just continue on with uh, John in chapter 20, where we left off this morning. I mentioned that uh, the disciples got word that Jesus was raised from the dead. Um, The witnesses had seen him out of the grave alive. And then we transitioned from the morning time of that Sunday until the evening in verse 19, John chapter 20. John chapter 20. You're going to find John 20 toward the end of your Bible in the New Testament section, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if you're online there watching and want to follow along in your own Bible. John chapter 20, verse number 19. Welcome, Brother Thurman. Good to see you tonight. Yes. John 20 and verse 19. Then... The same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, logically, right? The Jews had just killed Jesus a couple days earlier. It says, Jesus came and stood in the middle in the midst of them, amidst them, and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Okay, why did he show them his hands and his side? Well, because they could see the nail scars in the hands and the spear piercing in his side. And then it says this, Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. In other words, they have authority in in proclaiming the gospel message, which is what again, that Jesus died and was buried and rose again from the dead the third day, was seen by witnesses, and that he died, not just he died, but he died for sins, he died for sinners, and if people believe in him, the gospel message says, then their sins will be forgiven, will be Uh, taken by Jesus. Remember the robes transferred from him to us, our sins transferred from us to him in that great exchange. And uh, that if you proclaim that message, you are authorized to tell people, look, if you believe in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. But if you don't, your sins are not forgiven. We have that authority from heaven assigned by God to share that message with people. Okay? Now, verse 24 says, Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. Some of your Bibles may say Thomas, uh, called Didymus, twin. Should we, just, we should just say that in English. The other disciples therefore said to him, to Thomas, we've seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into those prints of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Well, he's a tough customer, okay? I am not going to believe it unless I see it. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them this time, of course. 
Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst again, like before, and he said, peace to you. Then he, he must have turned to Thomas. Thomas, I'm going to talk to you now. He said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand there and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. That's, the, that's that kind of thing about Thomas. Doubting Thomas is how he got his name here. But he was, in a way, it was very helpful as an illustration for us because the disciples did not all just believe, um, you know, willy-nilly. They did not just say, oh, wow, it must be true, you know, imagination or hallucination or something like that. No, he demanded evidence. He demanded to see. And so Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And we can say with great confidence that those outnumber the ones who have seen and believed, okay? Uh, because all of us, for the, for the years after the, the uh, Lord left this earth and went to heaven, we have believed without personally seeing him. We see all the evidence, we see the message of him, and so on, and we know it's true, but we haven't seen him personally. Verse 30, and truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Now, when we say signs, what we mean is miraculous signs, okay? We're speaking about things that he did like healing people who were sick. He even raised a couple of dead people. Those kinds of signs he did. And he did many of those which are not written down, but verse 31 says, these are written, the whole book of John, from John 1 all the way up to John 21, all these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So in addition to receiving forgiveness from him and righteousness, you also receive the gift of life. And that's what John's purpose is. John is writing so that you would believe in Jesus, the Messiah, that's the translation of the word Christ, anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God, that's who he is, his nature, he is deity, and that believing and so believing you may have life in his name. So thus ends the, uh, really the part of the gospel about the crucifixion and the resurrection. There's kind of a, an epilogue here in chapter 21. But uh, the Lord uh, did that and had John write it down so that people would, could become Christians. That was the point. Okay. All right, I'm going to stop my reading and almost getting into preaching here and let Jansen come in just a moment. I'll have you folks who are on the younger side go upstairs to your... Truth Trackers Kids Class, yes, and some of you teachers can fit into that category as well, you younger teachers. All right, very good. Jansen, are you ready tonight? Looking very relaxed, probably very well fed this afternoon. If, any, if, if anything, that is the problem. I had, uh, I had this huge meal at Naomi's sister's house, and I was sitting there very nice and satisfied. And then they brought out the dessert. <laughs> oh, it was murder. <laughs> I had to try at least a couple of the four desserts they had, so now I'm working it off, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> All right, Jansen.
Yeah, we ate less than an hour and a half ago, so I'm really still in that. Uh, yeah, so thankfully I'm standing up, so I shouldn't fall over. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Thurman. You know, as, as, as we were singing, I was thinking, I hope we never discount the, uh, the moments we spend during a service singing. Uh, there's many things that singing accomplishes in this specific atmosphere and community of believers. Uh, maybe not so much outside of the church all the time, but uh, there are many things that are happening when we sing. First and foremost, we are worshiping our Heavenly Father by proclaiming things about him that are true and based in Scripture. But then we're also teaching ourselves when we sing as well, if we're really focusing on what we're singing because we're reminding ourselves of scriptural truths that uh, we need to meditate upon often. And then finally, or maybe there's more to it, but we're also ministering to others as well because we are reminding others of God's promises and his, uh, his, his name and, and uh, everything that gives comfort to us through his word. So I hope uh, it's not really an exhortation because I know that you already do that, but uh, a reminder of the significance of our time of singing. Yes, we do exalt, uh, so to speak, uh, the, the time in the pulpit, as it were, the preaching of God's word and the hearing of it, but uh, it is also saturated in our hymn books as well. And so uh, that's a wonderful blessing to be able to sing like that. All right, I invite you this evening to turn to the book of Ruth, uh, you may have been thinking that uh, since it's Resurrection Sunday that I would be pointing to you, to you to some resurrection passage, but that's not the case, not because I don't think it's important, but uh, we have gotten our, our dosage of that, so to speak, this, this day already, and I trust that you have been reflecting upon those passages anyways on your own. And so we're going to just continue our task this evening of looking and studying through the book of Ruth. You'll find that located in the first half of your Bible. Uh, Joshua, Judges, and then tucked in between uh, first or Judges and First Samuel is this little book named Ruth that we've been looking into uh, more deeply the past few weeks. And, uh, and so we pick up our, our study there this evening in Ruth chapter 1. But I do want to uh, remind us of some of the things that we've looked at already because I know that not all of you have been here consistently um, or, or at all. And so I want to uh, just call your attention to some of the things that we've looked at already. And for those who have been here, it's a good thing to remind ourselves of uh, the things we've already talked about. But uh, before we continue, let me pray to the Lord one more time here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we can gather. Lord, after uh, it being two years since really that could take place, and... um, So, Lord, we just thank you that you have sought it fit for us to gather and allowed us to and and given us the health and the building and uh, the freedom to do so. Lord, we we pray that you would bless now this time in the word, that it would, uh, the truth therein would greatly abound in our hearts so that we follow in obedience to what you have called us to do and how you have called us to behave and act, Lord, and As we go this week, may your word be on our lips, both uh, as we speak and as we sing, perhaps, and as we pray. 
in all that we do. Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen. I'll give you a kind of a rundown of the outline of chapter 1 to begin here, of just the first chapter, because that's all the farther we have gotten in our study. In fact, we'll be finishing up the last uh, three or four verses here of chapter 1 this evening. But beginning back in verse 1, we see that in verses 1 and 2 specifically, Elimelech uh, moves his family to Moab. The reason he does this is uh, revealed to us in verse 1 because it says there, there was a famine in the land. And so Elimelech, a man that was, uh, has it, had his stake, so to speak, in Bethlehem of Judah, uh, took his family, uh, his wife and his two sons, with him to the country of Moab to get away from this famine because, well, frankly, people need to eat. If there's a famine, there's a shortage of food. And as a husband and as a father, it's, uh, we presume he just wanted to be able to feed his family and take care of them. And uh, I, I know in the last few weeks, I've, I have put him under a little bit of scrutiny, so to speak, because in context, we know that this is during the time of the judges where Israel was going through a, uh, a cyclical pattern of disobedience uh, to God's commands. God would then send in a nation or a uh, surrounding nation to punish them. And then the people would get their wits about them, so to speak, and repent. Uh, well, first, God would, uh, would cause to uh, rise up a judge who would speak to the people on God's behalf and give, him, uh, give them God's word and, uh, and call them to repentance. And the people would repent, uh, nationally speaking, and God would cause peace to return to the land for a time until they became complacent again and once again would fall into disobedience. And so uh, we can perceive that the reason that, that there was a famine in the land during the time of these events is because of the disobedience that was taking place in Israel. Uh, after a nation comes in and destroys uh, another nation, famine is us- usually occurs thereafter because they've come, they've come in, they've perhaps burned the fields down, they've They've uh, maybe plundered all the, all the food that they had in store. And so famine was uh, often followed an invasion. And it was also uh, explicitly one of God's curses upon the people, a, a, a form of judgment during the time of the judges was to cause famine to enter the land. And so we can presume that the reason that there's a famine here is because of that. And so uh, was it right that Elimelech then took his family out of the country of Israel to the land of Moab? Or would it have been better for him to stay and to call his fellow brothers to repentance, be a missionary, so to speak, or at least a preacher of truth, and in hopes that God would restore the land and cause the famine to end? Well, uh, we don't exactly know Elimelech's thinking. We can be somewhat scrutinized him some, to some extent, but I think... On the other hand, we can understand that he did want to care for his family and not allow them to go hungry. And so he leaves Moab, or excuse me, he leaves Bethlehem and Judah and takes his family to Moab. We see there that he settles there for a time. Actually, it says in verse 4 that uh, they dwelt there about 10 years. And while they were there, uh, Elimelech and Naomi's two sons, uh, Malon and Kilian, took wives from the women of Moab, one named Ruth and the other named Orpah. While they were there, we see then um, beginning in verse, uh, where is that at? 
in verse 3, I guess backing up just a, a verse there, it says, Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. So Elimelech passes while they're in Moab. And then uh, we see in verse 5 that also both sons also pass away while they're in Moab. So it says at the end of verse 5, the woman survived, that is Naomi, her two sons and her husband, and all that was left was her and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. So uh, then beginning in verse 6 all the way through verse 18, we see kind of an interaction, a discourse between uh, Naomi and Orpah and Ruth. And they begin the, the journey back from Moab to Bethlehem after finding out that God had visited the people of Judah. It's likely that uh, the case is, is that the people came to a time of repentance and God therefore was restoring the land, blessing them once again, providing for them uh, the food that they needed to survive. And so uh, Naomi gets wind of this and begins the journey back with Orpah and Ruth uh, to Bethlehem. And along the way, Uh, We don't know how far they made it before Naomi turns to her daughters and urges them to return back to their own people. Remember, these two ladies are not Israelites. They are Moabites. And so she encourages them to return to Moab. And she gives a number of reasons why it would be senseless or unreasonable for them to continue on with her. And really, she says all of these things in their best interest. We see the character of Naomi as one that is gentle and kind and very selfless in many ways as she urges these two uh, ones to return to their home and with hopes that they would find husbands. They had been widowed, but they were probably still very, a very young age, uh, still at least uh, at an age where they could have remarried and had children. And so Naomi... Uh, encourages them to return, saying that she doesn't have any more sons, and even if she were to get married today, uh, there wouldn't be, uh, they wouldn't probably want to wait until uh, she had a child, because that would be another, well, 15 to 20 years before they would become of marital age. And by then, uh, Ruth and Orpah would have uh, perhaps been beyond age in which they would have even been able to bear children at that point. And so, she urges them to return, and Orpah heeds that advice after the urging takes place, and she kisses her mother-in-law goodbye. But we see in verse 14 this. It says, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. We see here that Ruth is uh, still unwilling, still unwilling to be reasoned with to return. She loves her mother-in-law. We see this. It's very clear in the fact that she doesn't want to return, and she clings to her, sig- uh, signaling that she, she is willing to go on with her, with Naomi, back to Bethlehem. Finally, in verses uh, 16 through 18, we see that Ruth makes an oath before God, before Yahweh, to Naomi, where in this passage... She declares her allegiance to Naomi and to her family. In verse 16, it says this, But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or turn back from following you after following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. 
Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. We see by the end of verse 17 that she is quite serious about her allegiance and her desire to follow Naomi. The fact that she makes a covenant or an oath before Yahweh, even allowing or indicting herself against God's own judgment upon her if she were to break that oath with Naomi. So Ruth is serious about her desire to return with Naomi. And Naomi finally recognizes this and sees that Ruth wants to go with her. In verse 18, it says, When she, that is Naomi, saw that uh, she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking with her. The matter had been settled, so to speak, and Naomi no longer tried to urge her or reason with her any longer, but accepted the fact, and I think willingly and happily, (laughs) I don't think she was uh, upset about this at all, that uh, Ruth would return with her to Bethlehem. Now, again, as I said this already, we are told uh, in Ruth 1.1 that the events of Ruth took place in the days when the judges ruled. And this introductory note helps us place a date on the events that Ruth took place in. Um, But it also does this. It informs us on the spiritual status of the nation of Israel at that time, like we've already mentioned This time when the judges ruled approximately covers 300 years of Israel's history, beginning with Othniel in Judges chapter 3 and concluding with Samson in Judges chapters 13 through 16. So the time frame in which the events of Ruth took place is somewhere between the dates 1380 B.C. and 1050 B.C. Again, that's kind of a wide range of dates. We don't know exactly uh, when uh, these events occurred the probably 12 to 14 years or so that Ruth uh, covers that time period or length of time that this book covers, but somewhere generally in this time frame of 1380 B.C. to 1050. We also mentioned before in our first study on Ruth uh, some of the themes that are mentioned in Ruth, and I want to remind you what those themes are because they are prominent to our study. The first of which is uh, the primary theme of Ruth is this. We can maybe say it this way. The purpose for which Ruth was written by its author was to exalt David. And I put this in. I didn't say this before. Really, God. It's an exaltation of God of how he did this. But at the same time, it is an exaltation of David and God by detailing how God has preserved David's lineage through the ages, specifically in the story of Ruth, though. It is clear by the end of of the book that the author's primary purpose of recording this historical narrative is to exalt King David by telling the beautiful story of his lineage in which God has preserved this line through an unusual person, not an Israelite, but a Moabite woman, a widowed woman, from an enemy of Israel, that is Moab, yet God saw fit, like other women that we know, to use her to preserve this kingly line from which then arises our even Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So this is the primary purpose of the book and a theme that we see therein. Another theme that we find in the book of Ruth, Ruth is a personal narrative of emptiness to fullness in the life of Naomi. From this kind of literary perspective, we recognize that Ruth is a beautiful development of this theme. From the onset, we see that Naomi, much like Job, is emptied of practically everything she had that was of value to her. Food, the very reason for which they had to leave. Her home, but even more importantly, her husband and sons. Completely emptied of all that was of value to her. But in the end, we see, as we'll see in the end when we study it, or, excuse me, Naomi experiences complete filling once again and fulfillment through her daughter-in-law, who is honored and has a good reputation amongst the women of the city, much like the Proverbs 31 wife. She is a woman, that is Ruth, who fears God, but also brings fulfillment to her mother-in-law, Naomi, by bearing her a son whom she can care for as her own. Now in Ruth chapter 1, we pick up in verse 19 through 21, where we find another, another valuable lesson for us that is developed that we can develop this evening by studying Naomi's reaction to personal suffering as it really relates to Job's reaction to personal suffering as well, as I see it. And although personal suffering is more prominently developed in the book of Job and other areas in Scripture as well, the parallel between these verses in Ruth and the storyline of Job is worth considering as it can teach us how we ought to respond ourselves to times of personal suffering. Here in Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, we find here the story pick up where it says, Now the two of them, that is Naomi and Ruth, went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when that they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Can you sense the bitterness in her, so to speak? At least the anxiousness and the frustration and the disappointment, the grief. Why have I lost everything that I have? Why has the Almighty done this to me? For we see in verse 21, I went out full. And the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. We see here that uh, at the return of Ruth and Naomi to Bethlehem, that the word of Naomi's return spread quickly around Bethlehem. It became the buzz of the city. At her reappearance, we see that many of the women were asking one another, can this be Naomi? 
You might wonder why they were uncertain about that. I mean, 12 years had passed. At the same time, I hope, you know, we don't normally age tremendously in that time. But of course, 12 years, a decade or so, will change our appearance. And that, coupled with the fact, fact that her experiences while in Moab, very traumatic as they were, most likely had taken a heavy toll on her physical appearance and her countenance as well. To a point that her old friends from Bethlehem were finding it difficult to believe that this was actually the woman named Naomi that had left them 12-some years before. We see that, as well, Naomi's reunion with these old friends is perhaps not what we would have expected as a normal kind of reunion after not seeing someone for so long. There is no laughter. There is no hugging, celebration, or happy greetings mentioned here. Instead, Naomi's feelings are expressed very vividly. Her inward feelings can no longer be contained, and her response to these women discloses her very inward thoughts that she had been pondering for some time. We see Naomi's reaction to personal suffering here beginning in verse 20, where she even goes to the point where she desires to be called by another name. She says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. Naomi strongly states that she no longer wants to be known by the name she was once known by, Naomi, which means pleasant. Instead, she insists that they call her Mara, which means bitter. Remember when the Israelites were traveling out of Egypt? You remember the place called Mara because of the bitter water? Yeah. Perhaps Naomi even had that kind of story or that event in mind. And actually, ironically, she was somewhat behaving, though I say this gently, like them, in that they were bitter. She was somewhat bitter against God, as the people of Israel had been bitter against God as well for not providing the things that they wanted, the leeks, the things from Egypt that they missed. You remember that? Complaining against God for taking them out of the luscious place of Egypt where they were in bondage to cause them to die in the wilderness. Seems that Naomi had some of some similar feelings here of bitterness at God for taking away everything that she had from her. So she didn't want any association any longer with that former life, a life that was deemed by pleasantness, a full life where she had a husband and sons and and food once they had traveled to Moab. Rather, she wanted to be known by a name that mirrored her inward feelings and countenance. Until now, Naomi had seemingly kept these thoughts to herself, but now she feels free to share them with others, with her friends. And the reason that Naomi wants to be called Mara is because she believes that God has dealt this misfortune upon her. 
This is the first of four accusations that she is about to make against God. Look at verse 20 again with me. She says, call me Mara. Why? Well, here's the reason. She gives it. For the Almighty, that is Shaddai, has dealt very bitterly with me. From Naomi's perspective, God was blameworthy of the calamity she had experienced while in Moab. I think the NIV actually captures the essence of Naomi's thoughts more adequately in this verse, where it reads, The Almighty has made my life very bitter. The second accusation describes why Naomi is bitter in more detail. Look at verse 21. She says, For I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Now, the fullness that is being referenced here is obviously has to be her family. She didn't go out full if it comes to things like material goods. She left because of a famine without food. And so the fullness being described here is the things that were most valuable to her, her family, her husband and sons. And so she believes that having gone out full in that aspect or in that sense, God has emptied her of those things. And she returns to her home without them. In fact, she goes on to accuse God even more here in, verse, in the end of verse 21, bringing a third accusation against the Lord. She says, I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Again, she wanted me to be called Mara. Since the Lord has testified against me. He has testified against me. The word testified is similar to wording that we find in Job used in a judicial sense. It is somewhat of a retributive-like language where God is punishing a person because of their behavior. In a judicial sense, it's there is someone who is, is accusing another for doing something wrong and therefore calling upon the judge to bring some kind of judgment or a sentence upon them for their behavior. In this case, Naomi believes that it is the Lord who is testifying against her. Ironically, in that sense, the Lord is both, she believes, the one testifying against her and also the one then that is bringing about the sentence. Naomi believes that the Lord has called her to account and then declared her guilty. We don't see specifically mentioned here what she believes that God is testifying against her for. Perhaps more in a retributive kind of sense, she believes that uh, their decision to travel to Moab was one that was not pleasing to God, and therefore, uh, in a retributive kind of sense, an act of disobedience ultimately then ends in an act of judgment. We do see that kind of 
justice take place on a national level with Israel often. We know that in the covenant between Israel and God, there is both blessings and cursings. And how do you get one or the other? Well, for Israel to receive blessing, there must be obedience. And if cursing is happening, there is disobedience. So in that sense, there is kind of a retributive sense of God's justice. But on a more personal level, we know that that's not always the case. In fact, we know from the Psalms and many other places that the wicked often prosper. That is, well, materialistically speaking. But we do know this, that in the end, they will receive their just reward. That was often David's, uh, can I say, chip, so to speak. Why, God? Why do you allow the wicked to prosper? Why not the righteous? Why do the righteous suffer? Well, perhaps Naomi felt the same way. Why had God afflicted her? She perhaps, I guess it seems in this case, believed that she or her husband had been disobedient, and therefore God is testifying against her for some reason and therefore bringing calamity upon her. But it seems that she believes that God has dealt unjustly with her to some extent, accusing God of dealing and making her life very bitter when she believes that it seems that it shouldn't be the case. Before I seem or appear too critical of Naomi, though, perhaps we could think of our own lives in which we have or will, we know, go through times of personal suffering. And what is our initial reaction? Why, God? Why me? What have I done? <laughs> well, I know I'm not a perfect person, but why have you afflicted me? Why have you made my life bitter? Have you ever met a person that is just characterized by bitterness? It's all they can think about. Whether they blame God or they blame someone else or just an act of nature or science or, or whatever, forces of evil, it controls their thinking. But that is not to be our reaction in the face of personal suffering, is it, as a believer? So Naomi brings these four accusations against the Lord. And there is a significant parallelism between this reaction that Naomi has and Job's reaction, at least at first, to the suffering that he went through. And I want to, just for the remainder of our evening, draw some of that parallelism for this very reason, not to divert our attention away from Ruth or to place our sole attention on the book of Job, because We'll save that study for some other time. But between these two reactions, the reaction that is of Naomi to personal suffering and Job's reaction to personal suffering, I want us to understand what our, well, let me put it this way, not reaction, but response, making somewhat of a distinction between that. Usually reactions, first reactions, are not tempered by uh, sound reasoning. It's often based on emotion, isn't it? 
But when we really have time to think about something, we can respond in a way that is both pleasing to God and also comforting to our own soul in personal suffering. And so, uh, although I'm not going to ask you to turn to any specific passage, at least at this time in Job, we know that beginning in chapter 38 of the book of Job, God responds to a number of accusations that Job himself has made against God, asking God, why, similar to Naomi, why have you dealt with me in such a way? For those who are, let me say this, for those who are unfamiliar with the book of Job, Job begins a life much like Naomi's, full of many plenteous things, both livestock and land and many children. And one by one, those things are emptied from him. He loses them by death or by disaster of nature, and he is emptied. And so Job is, at the very least, confused by these things, if not upset with God for taking these things away from him. And in chapter 38, God responds to these accusations by accusing Job, or, yeah, really accusing Job of speaking out of ignorance. Isn't that like us often? (laughs) Who are we to accuse God? We speak out of a finite mind. Who can understand the things of God? Let me... uh, Let me read that verse to you in Job chapter 38, because I think it's worth uh, reading here. In verse 1 of chapter 38, it says this, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Ouch. (laughs) Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. And so then God continues on, one by one, refuting uh, the fact that Job has uh, made accusations that are of worth, uh, or that can stand, really, that have any stake to them. These false accusations that Job has made against him of of discrediting his justice are one by one undone. And because of these, uh, we should understand that Job has made several untruthful accusations against God. First, God, uh, or Job believes that God has, has, excuse me, maliciously mistreated Job. And God responds to this accusation in chapter, or in chapter 10, verse 3, Job accuses God of oppressing him while smiling on the plans of the wicked. Later, Job charges God with attacking him in anger in chapter 16. He also accuses God of wrongdoing and counting him as an enemy in chapter 19. He also accuses God of denying him justice in chapter chapter 27 and with ruthlessly mistreating him In chapter 30. Furthermore, Job accuses God by saying that God is not taking care of other suffering people. He is not taking care of other suffering people. 
This is to say God is not fulfilling his role as sovereign since he allows the widow, the orphan, and the poor, and the needy to be oppressed by the wicked. We see this in Job chapter 24. A third accusation that God refutes, beginning in chapter 38 and, and uh, in, the, in the following chapters, is this. God has not distributed justice equally. By accusing God in this manner, though done in ignorance, and by desiring, consequently, to enter into litigation with God, Job is, in effect, passing judgment on God and therefore making himself out to be God's equal. In effect, Job is maintaining that God capriciously administers justice. In response to this, there is only one who is able to speak ex cathedra on the administration of justice. So if we had this evening time this evening, though we don't, we could look at Job chapter 38 and 39 and 40, where God begins to help Job understand that he is not equal to God, and that Job's knowledge, if God's knowledge is here, is below the floor. <laughs> Who are you, Job, to think that you know the things that I know or to think that you know how I administer justice in a sovereign and divine and holy manner? I think we could say God could have said similar things to Naomi and she would have probably learned much from that experience had it taken place, though we don't have any record of that. And so between these parallelisms, between Job's experience of much fullness to much emptiness, how can we learn ourselves how to properly respond to personal suffering? Now, don't become too worried because we'll work our way somewhat quickly through these, but I have seven key facets related to the topic of suffering as seen in the book of Job, but also as it relates to Naomi's own experience of personal suffering as well and how we can learn from her and Job's reaction to their suffering. Number one, that is the first key facet related to understanding why suffering takes place or in other words, how we are to respond to personal suffering. We can find solace and great comfort in dealing with suffering by knowing this, that although much human suffering will remain in the realm of mystery, that is exactly what God tells Job, suffering may be used by God as a vehicle for transformation of the sufferer. Job is never supplied, actually, the rationale for why God is allowing suffering to take place. I think we often have that kind of misconception about the book of Job. Um, if you know the book of Job well, you'll, you'll find that out very quickly by digging in that the reason for suffering is never explained explicitly by God. 
Job is somewhat left with an undone or an unanswered question, I should say. Rather, God helps Job understand that God is sovereign and that we are to trust him, that he will perfectly use these situations for his glory and for our good. And first means of good is that God will use and can use suffering as a vehicle for transformation of the sufferer to help them in their faith, strengthening them to trust God more. In fact, one of the emphasis of the Yahweh speeches that we find at the beginning of chapter 8 in Job is that the believer will never understand many things simply because he is not God. Yet Job is personally transformed through the process of suffering. Not just transformed in the sense of God in the end fills him up once again with daughters and sons and material goods, but he transforms, transforms him in a spiritual sense, helping him to understand how God is in control. This transformation is evident in this final response to Yahweh in Job 42, verses 2 through 6, where it's, it says this, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel with not, without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job has grown personally through the process of suffering in a way that revolutionizes his response to Yahweh by the end of the book. Humble, submissive faith has replaced his agonized being and thoughts Job has not only experienced suffering, he has experienced an encounter with God himself. And that is transforming. Secondly, we'll move quickly here. The book of Job emphasizes that all suffering falls within the purview of God's sovereignty. Job never supposes that God is anything less than sovereign, that his suffering is merely a random occurrence outside of God's sovereign hand. Rather, his struggle with God is with God himself. It is God's sovereignty that is the very basis of his conflict. Satan, the literary foil and perpetrator of these misfortunes, is merely a pawn in God's purposes. As Job asks from the beginning, shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? In other words, should we only accept the good from God and discount or be frustrated at the evil? That comes our way as well. God is ultimately the impetus behind everything which occurs. Thirdly, the author focuses on the righteousness of Job and that that points to the reality that there is such a reality as innocent or collateral suffering. Righteous people suffer. Righteous people suffer. Not just persecution from others, personal suffering, loss of loved ones, illness, and many other misfortunes. Not all suffering is tied directly to one's personal sin or 
a strict cause and effect relationship. Rather, some suffering is a result of the fallen sinful world that we live in. It's not attributable directly to immediate personal sin all the time. This theological emphasis is an appropriate counterbalance to other biblical books which pose a relatively straightforward connection between sin and consequences, like we talked about with Israel, where if they were obedient, blessing would occur, and if they disobeyed, cursing would fall upon them. That is not always the case. Sometimes there is innocent or collateral suffering. Number four, as we move on, no measure of preparation will galvanize the sufferer for the actual experience of suffering. When you receive the phone call that a spouse or a family member has been in an accident and has passed, or you receive word from a doctor, that's not good news. Nothing can quite prepare you for that. In other words, no matter how much we may think we are ready for suffering, the actual experience of it is usually or entirely a different matter. Job's response to this situation bears out that although he may have given prior thought to the possibility of personal tragedy, tragedy, Job chapter 3, verse 25, he says, What I feared has come upon me, what I dreaded has happened to me. The actual experience of it took his breath away. Accordingly, we are cautioned against assuming that all sufferers must grieve in the same way. Those who are grieving will experience affliction in its aftermath in various ways. Godly comforters must weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Number five, there is a space in suffering for lament and even pointed prayers to God expressing uncertainty in the midst of affliction and suffering. A desire to sanitize our grief, so to speak, stems perhaps from the mistaken notion that Christians must always display a stiff upper lip, so to speak. We always have to have it together. There is a time to grieve. There is a time to mourn. And although we don't mourn like those who have no hope, it is still appropriate to mourn. Sometimes we have this idea that we, although uh, you know, something has happened that's misfortunate or someone has passed, the only response, proper response is to say, well, we have the hope of the resurrection or we have the hope of the rapture or we have the hope that we'll see them again. And yes, that is key and appropriate for the believer. But mixed with those words ought to be similar or parallel words for that suffering person of grief, comfort, sympathy, allowing them to have that appropriate time of grieving. The book of Job demonstrates, however, that mourners are given room to vent those frustrations, as we've said, disappointments and questions to God. But again, the key is not allowing bitterness to take root. It seems that in Ruth chapter 1, verse 20, at least for a time, we know that the character in, in the uh, 
countenance of Naomi changes as the book progresses, but it seems that there has been some bitterness rooted in her heart that's been growing towards God. The key, then, is not allowing this bitterness to take root, but to be honest with God and wrestling through the experience of strange providences like Job did. That is why we have the book of Job, I am convinced, to help us, at least in one way, understand how another human being like ourself has wrestled with these things. Number six, I know we're above or beyond our time now, but we'll quickly finish here. For the believer, suffering leads to greater faith rather than loss of faith. And that is true of Naomi, isn't it? Seems that her, her faith has been weakened, perhaps over those 12 years of being in Moab and away from the land where God dwells, where his presence is, away from her own people, away from the center of worship, no longer having the spiritual leader of her home, no longer having her sons, all of those things combined, taking a toil and, a, and taking a, uh, a hit, so to speak, to her faith. So, as D.A. Carson notes, at, one, at no point does Job abandon faith in God. At no point does he follow his wife's advice to curse guy, God and die. It is precisely because he knows God to be there and to be loving and just that he has such a hard time understanding the injustice or he believes to be taking place. Job wrestles with God. He is indignant with God. He challenges God to come before him and provide some answers, but all his struggles are the struggles of a believer, are they not, in some way or in another? That is why Job can be praised by God himself for saying the right things, at least at some points, not at others. Remember, we read that God accuses him of speaking in ignorance. But at least Job has spoken within the right framework of how God works. Number seven and final key facet to understanding and responding rightly to suffering, we must remember this. God is gracious and compassionate toward the sufferer. He does not abandon them. God had not abandoned Naomi at all. In fact, although many readers contend that the happy ending of Job overturns a major point of the book, that is, the righteousness and evil do not result automatically in blessing and suffering, respectively, this should not be our conclusion. Rather, the end demonstrates that God has compassion towards his creation. He is free to display grace toward whomever he wills. His plans for his people are good, and he works to bring together all things for their good. Much of this activity remains veiled in mystery, as we know. But the book illustrates that believers must go forward in faith that God is working for their ultimate good in every situation. And I, I truly believe, drawing our attention as we close back to Naomi, that Naomi was not discounting God's sovereignty. Rather, she was responding, as sometimes we do, in bitterness. Why have you emptied me? But as we see, God fills her back up and in so doing strengthens and bolsters her faith once again in the Almighty, the God who reigns from the mountains, the God who is in control and has ultimately 
ultimately never left his people and has never left those who walk in faith with him. Let's pray as we close this evening. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time that we've had. Thank you for the book of Ruth. We thank you for the book of Job and the other 64 books that you have canonized and placed before us and for us for our own teaching and good. We thank you that we are helped in the area of personal suffering through the story of Naomi as well as Job and how we are to not react in in an emotional sense, but in in a cognitive and volitional sense to the suffering that you allow to enter into our lives. May we not lose hope that God has abandoned us, but that he is there teaching us, showing compassion upon us, and transforming us into the likeness of your Son as he perfectly displays the righteous life that we ought to desire to live. We ask all this in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for your patience this evening as we've gone uh, 10 or so minutes over our time. May the Lord bless you this evening as you go your way. And for those who are online, we thank you for joining us on this Resurrection Sunday. I pray that in the last few hours of your evening that you would relish dearly the fact that Christ has come for us to suffer personally on our behalf. Amen. May the Lord bless you as you go your way. You're dismissed.